First Peter says that lists the virtues that we're to grow in. Diligence, love, patience, all the things that we try to work so hard on. And he said people that aren't doing that, that are Christians, have forgotten that their sins have been washed away. That's why the Bible says so much about being grateful. Every day we should be grateful and thank God for what he's done for us because it reminds us of several things. It reminds us of what he's done for us. It reminds us of who we are and what we can do without him, which is really what humility is. It reminds us of how much he loves us and how faithful he is to us because look at what he's did for you when you didn't deserve anything. And it reminds us, it gets our eyes off of us and on him. And most of the struggles with our, in our own lives is because we spend too much time looking at ourselves and working at ourselves when the Bible says God is at work within you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's whether we're cooperating with him or not. But he's at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Not, bo- not to help you do your good pleasure. <laughs> this is not about you or me. It's about him. We've been grafted into Christ. He is the head. That's the part that makes up its mind, what it wants done. We are the body. Now, in the world's eyes, that looks like some kind of slavery. And yet, that's the greatest place of freedom there is. Amen. Because you were made by him to be part of him. And it's when we try to live our life on our own, by our own strength, to do our own will, to carry out our own agenda, that's when we struggle. So the struggles in our life, not the outside things that come in, the struggles within us are always struggles trying to bring our life really unto obedience to Christ. And that is simply by submitting your life to Him and allowing Him to work in you. It really issues who's in control. Who's in control? Either you, you are, and that's an illusion because you're never in control, or he is, and the peace is when he's in control, and that's, what he's, that's the will that he's working in us. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have now to turn to your word. We've worshiped you with song and with, with fellowship with one another a little bit this morning, and, and we've heard song that has stirred our hearts right now. And now we want to turn to what you've given to the church. You've given to us your word. And you've given to us your spirit. That is the provision that you've made for us. And we've come together this morning as the body of Christ here at Faith Christian Center to draw together to seek you this morning, to love you and to be loved by you and to grow this morning. You are our Father. And so we come now to sit at your feet, Father, and allow you to speak into our lives, not just understanding and ideas, but in part down deep in our heart. Father, your word says, and we discussed this last week, your word says, eyes have not seen and ears have not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of men all that you have prepared for those who love you. But you have, your spirit searches down into the deepest parts of your heart this morning to pull up from your heart that which you want him to impart into us. That is your word and your promise to us. 
And so, Father, we stand on that promise today, and we expect this morning, this day, that by your Spirit, you will deposit in our hearts something from your heart this morning, and especially a revelation of how much you love us. And we thank you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to continue our study of who Jesus is. And we're looking at a particular aspect of it, but let's read our foundation scripture this morning, first of all. Starting in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And he said, Some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And of course, that's the question that we all get asked. And that's the answer to that question that determines everything for you. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father is in heaven. This I say also to you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. We looked at all kinds of aspects of that, and we'll just kind of as an outline, and we'll go through most of those before we're finished our study. But we're talking specifically about the answer that Peter gives in, in verse uh, 16 when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus' response to that is, you didn't think that up, but that was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. We talked about what that means to us is God has given us his answer to that question of who Jesus is. Notice what's not listed in here. We've talked about this before. It doesn't say he's redeemer. It doesn't say he's healer. It doesn't say he is, he is savior. It doesn't say all those things. Those are all true. They're really central to the gospel. But that's not who he is. That's what he's done and what he does. The question here is who is he? And the question to you and me is who is he to you? And who is he to me? Not who do I say he is in church but who is he in my life? Who is he to you in your life? Who is he in the darkest hour? Who is he when there's pressure comes on you and you don't know where to turn? Who is he to you when, when, when the bottom falls out suddenly and it can happen suddenly? Who is he when the pressure's so hard on you, whether it's financial or health or all of those combined and other things, and you want to give up? Who is he to you then? That's the question. Because that's who he is to you. And the answer that God gives that we're studying is two things. You are the Christ. And you are the son of the living God. We've talked briefly about what it means to be the Christ. And we may go back and talk more about that. But we're talking right now because I really felt the need to get into this. What does it mean that he's the son of the living God? We went back and looked and saw briefly that what that means is he has existed before all of creation. Jesus is when God, the name Jesus was given to him when God became flesh and dwelt among us. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And verse 14 says, And that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We look back and saw that that Word means he was the full expression of God the Father, God the Creator. We talked about that, and that's who he is. He's the full representation of God the Father. We saw that he's always existed. What happened in Bethlehem 
is he took on flesh and now lived among us as a human being. And we're not going to go back over all that. And, and in that he is the anointed one. That means he's been chosen by God for a purpose. And that purpose was to redeem mankind and destroy the works of the evil one. We saw that he was given God's ability to carry out that purpose. And that's what it means to be the anointed one. And then we began to look, what does it mean that he is, God gave his son into that position? God didn't choose an angel. God didn't choose the smartest person that's ever lived. God didn't choose the best person that's ever lived and say, you know what, I'm going to pick you. And you're going to be the one I'm going to anoint to be the savior of the world. No, God chose his only begotten son. And there are several things that that means to us. We're looking at the first one. The first thing that means to us is God chose to give his very best and dearest for you. The second thing we're going to look at is that because it's God's son, we need to treat him with the reverence and respect of who he is that God has given to us. So we're looking at that first thing right now. John 3.16 For God so loved the world. Are you in the world? Then it includes you. Notice God's heart is so big, it's big enough to cover everyone that's ever lived. I used to think, well, God's loving the world means what his love for me is kind of watered down. But there's no end to his love. The fact that he loves the whole world means his heart's big enough to include everybody, even people you and I might not include. Remember when Lafayette Scales was here last year and went through a series of, how would you feel if these people show up? How would you feel if people very... Now, this is a wonderful church. We've got around 30 nations represented here. So obviously, we're not just, you know, cookie cutter, you know. We're very open, but even at that, we have our comfort limits what if people from the street just started want? I mean, not the streets of Seekonk, <laughs> but the streets of Providence just start walking in here because last night in the midst of their drug binge, the Spirit of God somehow got a hold of them and they had a desire to be in church and they want to sit on the front row and we look at them and say, what are you doing here? For God so loved... Understand this. I appreciate your love for this church and my love for this church. I appreciate your loyalty to this church and I have a loyalty to this church. But this is not your church and this is not my church. That makes it a club. In clubs, they vote who gets in. You and I have no vote of who gets in here because we didn't pay for the church. I mean, you may give your tithes and offerings, and you do, but we're talking about what brought us here, what qualifies us, is His blood shed for us. This is His church. 
And he's called us here to serve him together and to serve one another here. And we can't ever forget that. It doesn't matter how many years you've been here, what you've done here. I've been here, we've been here 22 years, I think, and I'm the pastor of this church. It's not my church. It's his church. And when we have that right attitude, then we'll find that that's when his heart begins to work in us to expand and decide. For God so loved the world. So, we talked about the word so. That's a measure of how much. And we looked at that last week. And, we began, and we're going to finish that this week and maybe get into something else. For God so loved the world that he couldn't sit still and see us die and go eternally to hell. But he had to do something. And what is it he did? He took the very best, the most precious to him that he had. And he gave his son's life in your place and in my place. And we looked through some scriptures last week. We're going to pick up today in Romans chapter 5 because that's where we ended. And I told you last week I got so excited because there was a scripture I wanted to get to. We're going to get there this week. Romans chapter 5. As we prayed this morning just before the message began and we talked at length about last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says there's things that God has prepared for you that you've not seen yet and that you've not heard yet that hasn't even entered your heart. But we looked at the scripture last week that said that God has sent his spirit to look, search down even into the depths of God's own heart to pull out of there for this morning what God wants you to have in your heart. Romans chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1 now. Now, verses, chapters 1 through 4 are talking about the grace of God, talking about the fact that our standing before God is not based on anything we do or don't do. That's what's called the law. In fact, what it says is if, if you measure us by God's standards, then we all are, 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 your best day is like dirty rags to him. You're not a dirty rag to him, but your efforts to make yourself clean in God's eyes at your very best are nothing but dirty rags. Why? Because God's standard is perfection. In other words, his standard is to be holy as he is holy. And in that light, in that comparison, your best day and my best day are filthy rags. And he talks about, but there's a righteousness that God has provided for us that's not based on your own works. It's based on his works that you receive by faith. And that's really what chapters 1 through 4 is about. Chapter 4 talks about the faith of Abraham. In other words, he brings it down to this. He said, Abraham became a child of God because he believed a promise made to him. God made a promise to Abraham who was 75 years old. His wife was 65 years old and she was barren. She could not produce children for him. And God said, I am going to make you, the f I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And about 24 years later, when it still hadn't happened, God appeared to him and said, I'm going to come back nine months from now, and you're going to have a son. And when they believed that promise, God was able to carry out the promise he made to them. They had to test God in the meantime by his wife found, took his maid 
and gave his maid to her. And his maid produced a wife for him. And then they brought Ishmael to God saying, we carried out your promise. And God says, no, no, no. It's going to be because I do all of it and all your part is to is believe the promise that I made to us. That is a model for how we're saved. You're saved not because God made a promise and you added your good works to it, just like they added their effort and produced Ishmael. Our salvation is based on the fact that God made a promise to you that he gave his only son's life in your place, that if you would believe on him, you would not perish, but you would have everlasting life. That's the promise God made to you, and your part is simply to believe that's true and then act as if that's true. And then all of God's, the righteousness that Jesus earned by perfectly obeying the law is now attributed to you as a free gift because you believed God's promise. That's Romans 1 through chapter 4. Chapter 5 begins, therefore, with this. Therefore, having been, what tense is that? English scholars, it's past tense. Having been justified. That's a legal term in Greek, which means to have been made acquitted, not guilty, and, and, and right in the eyes of the judge. Amen. A simple definition I've heard is, just as if I'd not sinned. Having been justified by faith, that's by your faith and His promise, we have, not will have, not hope to someday, we have, present tense, peace with God. We live in a violent world. I just checked the news this morning. In the last two days, there have been three mass shootings. Two in this country just in the last 24 hours. People just walking into some public place. In one case, it was a children's party. And just opening fire and starting to shoot. We live in a world that does not have peace. Our government can't find peace. They can't get along within our own government and make decisions for, the right, for what's best for people. And they may be sincere, maybe differences in ideology, but there's just no peace out there at all because the reason for the basis of no peace is there's no peace with God. Angry people, eventually the pressure builds up and they act out of that anger. And that's what you're seeing. There's no re relief. There's no release for the anger and the fear. So it's coming out in ways that Satan is using to carry out his purposes. But we're the church. Amen. We've been justified by his blood. We have peace with God. But so many Christians I know still don't have peace. And the way the peace comes is by reading this verse, believing it's true, and then acting as if it's true for you, whether you feel it or not. We have peace with God through God our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access, that's access to Him, by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we glory in tribulation, that's troubles, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. That means steadfastness. Perseverance produces character. The New American Standard says proven character. I like that better. And proven character produces hope. The word hope in the Bible means a confident expectation. And hope does not disappoint. Why? 
He's talking about the hope of our future redemption here. We have peace with God now because of what Jesus has done for us. But this isn't everything. You understand this. I love, I've heard this statement before, and it's so good. For a Christian, this life is the closest thing to hell you're ever going to experience. For someone that's not a Christian, it's the closest thing to heaven they're ever going to experience. But for us, it's the closest thing to hell that you're going to experience. But there is tribulation in this world. You've, Jesus did say we shouldn't be shocked. He said in this world there is tribulation. You've got to have that scripture on your refrigerator. <laughs> believe in that. You don't have to believe it. It's there. <laughs> but we have a hope. Amen. The hope which is what Paul prays for in the beginning of Ephesians, is that God would open the eyes of their understanding, they would see the hope, the confident expectation of their calling. We should be confident about the future. Not because the world's going to get better, but because our future gets better. And God has given us in other places, Paul calls it a down payment, a deposit, earnest money. The word is arabon, which actually means engagement ring. God has given you something tangible to show you that this hope is something you can put your trust in. And that hope is the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. And so in Ephesians, God talks, Paul talks about it as a guarantee. But in Romans 5, he talks about this guarantee as a hope, a confident expectation. You read 2 Timothy and you see a man who is in prison about to be executed. And this is not a man discouraged. This is not a man downcast. This is not a man looking back and saying, why did I do this? Because he starts out by saying, one whole continent I preached to fell away. All those that he's won in Asia fell away. But he's not discouraged. Say, Why did I do this? Because his eyes aren't on the people that he did it for. His eyes are on the Lord to whom he was faithful and to whom he says there's a reward coming to me. There's a hope, a confident, steadfast expectation. And in a day and age you, day and age you and I live in, we need that. Don't be married to the world. Don't base your hope on the stock market, whether that's your job or not, that's not the hope of your future. That's not the hope of your identity. That's not the hope of, your, of what God has for you. Don't place your hope on people. Don't place your hope on the government. Don't place your hope on anything that this world offers to you. You can live in here. You can enjoy it. But don't place your confidence in it. Our confidence is in our Lord, who is our King, who is coming back for us. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is what God has promised us. That's where our eyes have to be. And that's what gives you the boldness to get up every morning smiling and being hopeful. Because nothing happens in this world can take that hope away from you and God has taken a small part of that hope and made him as a deposit in your heart that's what this word says so we should be the most hopeful people there are because we're full of hope because he's put his hope inside of us now the verse says tells us what this hope is. Now, hope does not disappoint. 
your hope that God's given you will not disappoint you. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Many people, and I've used this, and it's true, use this verse to teach that we can love one another because God's put his love in us and we can give that love away. And that's the truth. But what he's really saying here is the other side of that. Because he's, he's talking about us being hopeful and God giving us evidence on which we can base that hope. So the evidence is not so much that God's deposited his hope in us, his love to give to other people, although that's true, but that God's deposited, listen to me carefully, God has deposited his love for you in you when the Holy Spirit came to dwell in you. God gave his son for you because he loves you to go to that cross, but his son is seated at his right hand this morning. But God took his spirit, the spirit of his love. Let's put it this way. God took his heart of love for you and deposited his own heart for you in you. So the Holy Spirit is in you to reveal to you God's love for you. His love's not hanging on a cross anymore. He went there. His love's not in a grave anymore. He went there. His love in the Son is seated at His right hand as the victory for you. But the expression, the experience of His love for you, He deposited in you. How come I don't feel it? We're going to talk about that. But it begins by believing it's in there. Because you won't look for and turn to something you don't believe is there. But that's what this verse is talking about. God doesn't want you to know theologically he loves you. He wants you to, we're going to see a little later on. He wants you to experience the fullness of his love for you. It's a heart matter. So God has literally taken his heart for you out and deposited him in you with the assignment to make his love real and tangible to you. Because when you know that love, you can't help but respond back to him. And I know it's hard for our minds to grasp, but our hearts are capable. How he longs for you this morning. I want you to turn to a scripture. I didn't got to apologize to the translators. I didn't give it to them. It's James chapter 4. It just came to me. James chapter 4. We're going to take our time on this because there is nothing that you can know as an experience in your life that's more important than how much God loves you. And I've got to find this now.
Here we go. Now, it begins this chapter by kind of blasting away a little bit. It says, where do wars and fights come from? Don't they come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covenant and covet, not covenant, covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask amiss or the wrong way with the wrong motive for, that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterers and adulteresses, that's saying you've broken your relationship with God who loves you as a, as a husband loves his wife or a wife loves her husband. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's not saying we can't enjoy the world and the things of the world. is giving your heart to the world. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. Now stop there a second. That means... When our heart has been given to other things first before God, this love of God for you that's been deposited in you sits inside of you yearning jealously for you. See, we, I, we can get this out that God doesn't have feelings or emotions. Why would he give us something he doesn't have? God's passionate. He doesn't lose control of his emotions, but he is passionate. And he is passionate for you to the point that when we give our heart to something else first, that deposit of love inside of us, the Holy Spirit, sits in you yearning jealously to get your attention back. See, we think, you know, I'm small and insignificant. What difference does it make to God what I do? It makes every bit of difference to him. The proof of it is what he was willing to pay for you. We're talking about how much God loves you, and the evidence of it is he was willing to give his own son to pay for your soul, to pay for you. And so when we give our hearts to other things, his spirit, his love inside of us sits in there jealously, jealously, longing to be first in your heart over whatever else you've allowed or I've allowed in. For God so loved the world now, you're ready for the verse I was excited about last week? Yeah. You're really ready? Oh, yeah. You sure? Yeah. If not, I can skip it and we can go on and speed this up and get you out earlier. Yeah. You sure you're ready? Yeah. All right. Okay. Just want to make sure because I, you know, I'll give it the second service if you're not interested in it. Okay. So. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 1, God, Paul goes forth and, and lists some of the, not some of them, the blessings that God has given to us in Christ by his grace. And he ends that chapter, of course it wasn't written in chapters and verses, he ends it with a prayer 
that God would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see the hope of his calling for our life that's in Christ Jesus, that we would see the glory of the inheritance that we have together with all saints and the exceeding greatness of the power that he displayed towards us when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead, far above all principalities and powers. So he's talking about the power he wants God to reveal to us. Three things, the last being the power that he displayed towards us when he raised Christ from the dead. It's important. And he seated him above the authority of all principalities and powers. Chapter 2 starts out by saying what? And you were dead in your transgressions. So what does this power he's displaying towards us mean to us? Christ died and by that power was raised from the dead. You and I already were dead. By dead in the Bible, there's two types of death, actually three the death Bible talks about. The first is physical, natural death. We're all familiar with that. The second is a spiritual death. That means to be separated from God because God is the source of life. If you're separated from the source of life, you're dead, spiritually dead. So when you're born again, you become spiritually alive unto God. So the death he's talking, and the third death is the eternal, the final death, when those who are not in Christ are put away from God once and for all, at the great, great white throne. But the death he's talking about here is the death you and I were in before we came to Christ, which means we had, did not have the life of God, which is the only true life, in us. And we couldn't produce it ourselves, no matter how hard we tried and what we did. We couldn't bring life where there was death. And what God did in Christ is when he was dead, he brought life into that dead body and raised him from the dead. In the same way, he brought life into you and raised your inner man from the dead and made your inner man alive unto God. There's a hope coming when when he comes back, he's going to take this mortal body that'll be dead and bring that alive with that life of God. So your body will have the same life on the outside that your spirit man now has on the inside. That's the resurrection from the dead. That's what he's talking about here. All right. Chapter 2, but you he made alive who were dead in your transgress, trespasses and sins. You've got to forgive me. I know this so well in the New American Standard that even when I'm reading it in the King James, sometimes that's what comes out. In which you w- w- formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. That tells you that people that are not saved are walking under the power of spiritual forces and in obedience to them, in an disobedience to God. And that's where we were. Verse 3 says, Among whom you also once conducted yourself in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature... Remember when I have people come and receive the Lord, I'll talk to them about the fact that we try to make ourselves better by changing our behavior. And the problem is our behavior is a result of our nature. 
and you've heard me over and over again use the example of trying to change an apple tree into a pear tree by gluing pears on it. And it will have pears on it until the first storm comes along that's stronger than the glue and it blows the pears off because the pears didn't come out of the tree, I stuck them on it. In the same way, until you come to Christ, all your good works are like trying to stick Him on you. It lasts until the first storm comes along and the glue is the effort of your self-will and when that self-will is run out, all those, good, all those intentions to be good blow away and you, your nature comes out. So what God did is He came inside of us and changed our nature and He brought His nature in. And the rest of your walk with Christ is the working out of that nature from the inside to the outside. And so that's when he, Paul says here, you were by nature. That's where we came from. Our nature is what caused us to act the way we do, did. Now when we act that way now, we're not acting according to our nature. We're acting against our nature, which is why your spirit bothers you when you're not acting in accordance with your nature. And we're by nature children of wrath. That doesn't mean we were angry children. We were children the subject of His wrath because we were walking in disobedience. And this is what I want you to say. That's where we were. But, oh, that's one of those little words, like so. But, the word but means a change in direction. Everything I've just said says I was headed this way. This is where I was. The word but means, uh uh-oh, I turn around and something's going to change. What he's saying here is I was in a place, I was dead. Spiritually dead. No matter how hard I wanted to, how much I wanted to, and how hard I tried, I could not make myself obedient to him or like him because it literally was not in me to do. And if no matter how hard I try and everybody around to try, nothing was going to change and the ultimate destination of my life because of that was going to be eternally separated from God in hell. But that little three-letter word, but, said something happened to change all that. And the next word's key, but God. How many of you ever had situations in your life that I call a but God situation? There was no hope but God. I've been in practical situations. There was one time when years ago we were still in Bible school. We were on our way back to school after a Christmas break and we were dropped off at Logan Airport I don't know what I was thinking. This is, of course, before all the 9-11 and all that stuff, but you still had to go through some procedures and things like that. And we're dropped off by the people that had us at the curbside along with probably four or 500 other people. Never dawned on me was the end of Christmas, you know, it was the day after New Year's. I don't know what I was thinking. So we got there like half an hour before the plane was going to leave. Oh, by the way, we had four kids. <laughs> Two of them under the age of six in a stroller luggage, and if we're not back in school tomorrow, we get penalized. 
And you know, my, my mind starts racing. And of course, it races with everything that can go wrong. What am I going to say to the dean? How am I going to do this? Because I'd already given up on making the plane. And then I remembered some things I'd been learning in Bible school. But God. And instead of getting anxious, which is, was my nature back then, getting all worked up and letting my mouth run, we're going to miss... I just walked a little bit away from my family because they were all looking anxious and he was looking anxious. I said, God, I don't know. I didn't think. I'm sorry I put us in this position. You called us to go to school. I don't want to miss class tomorrow. My wife doesn't want to miss class tomorrow. We're in a mess here. I don't know what to do, but it's your problem because your Bible says to be anxious for nothing and to make your request be made unto God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your heart. Say, Lord, I ask for your mercy. I don't know how you're going to do this, but you're going to get us back there. I kid you not. I no sooner finished saying that, and I heard, because our flight had to go through St. Louis to Tulsa. I heard somebody say, anybody on the flight to Tulsa? I mean, to, to, to St. Louis. I said, we are. She said, this was, a, this was somebody representing the airline. Come here. She took me, Anita, four kids, suitcases. She parted everybody, and she led us to the plane. (laughs) Sitting in our seats with five minutes to spare. But God, I've been in the middle of trials and had a judge throw my case out. Asked for a a day recess. He gave me 10 minutes to figure out what I was going to do. All kinds of people telling me what to do. I went down to the end of the bench, pulled out a yellow pad, says, God, I don't know what to do here. This is in your hands. What do you want me to do? And a question came to me to ask of a particular witness. I get back into court. The judge basically says, okay. He knew it was nothing for me to do. He says, all right, what are you going to do? So I called this witness up went through the preliminaries and I said, ask this question that I had down on my yellow pad. As soon as I did that, every lawyer on the other side jumped up objecting as loudly as they could. I said, whoa. Whoa. We hit a nerve here. And the judge who'd been sleeping, he'd been doing this for 34 years, sat up and looked at the witness and said, I want to hear the answer to that question. At that point, I said, go ahead, Your Honor, you take over. The answer to that question exposed a scheme that the other side had. The judge, it turned the entire case. I didn't know that. But God. You and I were dead. No hope. Nothing you could do. But God. Uh, look at the best is yet to come. Oh, this is so good. But God. So we're going to, he's going to talk a little bit about this God who's budding in here. Who is rich. In mercy, that's what I experienced at Logan Airport. 
who's rich. Now, rich is a relative term. I don't mean it means you've got relatives that are rich. <laughs> oh, that's that nice. Rich depends on what you're comparing it to. If you're Bill Gates, your concept of rich may be different than yours or mine. Because rich takes where you are as the baseline and goes above it. Rich is determined by what resources you have available. It doesn't say but Bill Gates being rich in mercy. It doesn't say but Warren Buffett being rich in mercy. It doesn't say some Shah or Sheik from the Middle East being rich in mercy. It says but God rich. Not just, see, we have this idea that God dispenses mercy through this eyedropper. You know, let's see what you need. Lisa, let's see what you need. Well, you, you need a lot of mercy because, <laughs> Brendan, we, you need mercy. You know, you know, we all, you know, just, you know, Joe needs mercy. We all, it's, whatever you need, let's see, well, I'll give you this amount for today. The Bible says earlier in Ephesians, he lavishes it. He's rich in it. He's not going to run. You're not going to run him out. But God, what's he like? He's rich, not just in gold, but he's rich in mercy. I, I need the mercy more than I need the gold. The gold will just get me in trouble, so I need more mercy. <laughs> So that's who he is. Let's see what he did. Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us, he made us alive. I was headed this way, but God, Rich in mercy. I was headed to death because that's where I was, what I was already in. Rich in mercy, he made, he, he, he made me alive. Let me ask you a question. Does God fail? Does God come up short in something he does? When he does something, he does it. He made me Amen. alive. I'm not partially there. I'm not on my way. He made me alive. He just did it. Just like he got me on that plane. He made me and he made you. He did it. I can't get this out. He did it. Not he's going to do it. He did it. He made because he wanted to. He made you alive. Now understand this. Before he makes you alive, you don't know him. So he's not doing something you've asked him to do because you don't know him yet. He's doing it because he wants to do it. And once he's done it, 
Now you can know him and thank him, but she's not doing it because you asked him. He's doing it because he wanted to. He made you alive. Oh, it gets better. He made you us alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved and he raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us. His ultimate thing he's going to do is to hold you and me up in front of angelic forces and say, see what my grace was able to do with that mess. We're not living our life to be trophies of our good efforts and how good Christians we are. Our lives are being used by God as a trophy of what His mercy and His grace can do in a mess like you and me. That's why when Paul cried out to him, he said, three times I asked, he take this pressure away from me. It wasn't sickness. It was persecution. He tells you what it was. And the Lord's answer was, my grace is sufficient. He didn't say no. My grace is sufficient. In your weakness, God said, my strength is made perfect. In your weakness. Paul got it. He says, therefore, I've learned I'd rather glory in my weaknesses when I run out, when I'm frustrated, when I can't do it, when I've run out of what I can do. That's when I start glory because that's when his ability and his grace takes over. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But I skipped over a very important word. Back up in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, the next work in the New King James is because of His great love. I want to talk for a minute about the word because. See, these little words we skip over are so full of power if we'll just meditate on them. The word in Greek, when it's used with this, with this I don't want to get into the details, it's used with this word, literally means the ground for or the reason for which something is done. What we skip over here when we read this is we read what God has done. We just got excited about what God has done for you and me. What we haven't looked at is why God did this. Why would God, a holy, righteous, absolutely powerful, all-knowing God 
Why would he look at you and me with all our unrighteousness, all our failings, all our feeble attempts to try to do something with ourselves, all our good intentions which we never carried out and really, if we're honest, knew we never would. And that's the good part of us. Why with all of that would he reach into us and on his own initiative, when we didn't do anything, make us alive unto him? Why would, what would motivate him to do that? That's what's tucked in this verse. Because of, motivated by, on account of. In other words, the reason that I've done this is because of the great love with which he loved us. I want to read this in the Amplified. This is so good. Oh, God. I'm telling you. Pardon me while I just... I can't even find it, and I got it marked in here. There we go. Well, you ready for this? But God, here it is again. I want to just so rich is He in His mercy because of. And in order to satisfy the great and wonderful and intense love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins. I want to read that again. But God, this is God talking about himself. So rich is he in his mercy because of and in order to satisfy the great and wonderful and intense love with which he loves us. I want to talk for a few minutes about satisfying desire. Because that's what God's talking about. His desire for you. You know what it's like to have a mosquito bite or something in your back? And you just... You got to find something to scratch it. Because there's an intense need there that you're not satisfied until you get that thing scratched. That's a little bit of what it means. God had something in here for you that wouldn't ever go away until he had you. And the fact that it meant taking his beloved son and doing what he had to do to him to have you, he was more than willing to do it because he had to, to satisfy that longing and desire for you. The only thing that I can kind of relate it to, and it's just, it's, a, it's not small to me, but it's small in comparison, is that this last week we just celebrated our 44th anniversary. And one of the things we'll do is we'll pull out 
wedding albums at the risk of going, <gasps> is that what we look like then? <laughs> <clears throat> my goodness, my parents were right. We were too young to do that. <laughs> but we didn't think we were. <clears throat> Anita and I met, and some of you heard this story before. My, we, she was a, a, a blind date. She was only the second person I ever dated, and I was a junior in, high, in college. That's how shy I was. And I had a car, and my good, close fraternity brother had a, was engaged to Anita's roommate, and he had no car. So that was a natural combination. He says, I'll fix you up if you'll drive me out there. Now, out there was 800 miles. <laughs> that was about 400. It was from way upstate New York to Cincinnati, Ohio. And I drove him out there, and, you know, we, I met this nice young nursing student, and she was nice. And, yeah, we had a nice time, and <clears throat> I didn't think much of it. And then uh, a few weeks later, uh, she was on vacation, uh, spring break, and I was going through there on the way to my spring break, so I just had callers, you know. If you're not doing anything, I'd like to stop by and just see you. And at that time, I fell in love with her. I couldn't get her out of my mind to the point that literally every other weekend I would drive that trip to see her. Now you got to understand where I drove. I did this for all of one school year. I'm driving through three major snow belts. Rochester, New York. Buffalo, New York, actually four, Erie, Pennsylvania, Cleveland, Ohio. I had date nights, oh, by the way, I'd, she had to be back at midnight on Tuesday, Sunday night. I would take her back at midnight because I was with her every moment that I could. Say goodnight to her. I'd get in my car and drive all night for my 8 o'clock philosophy class Monday morning. And you know how much of that I got. <laughs> And I'm dry. There were times I got had to get the snow was so bad I'd get up behind a semi. I'm not. This is you know the warning they get. You no, know, this is for professional drivers only. This is for fools only. Okay, <laughs> don't kids don't listen to. I get behind that truck and I just trusted that truck was going where I was because it's the only way I could see or get through. Foolish, but I didn't think about that. I didn't care about that. All I know is from the moment I was not with her until I saw her, there was an ache in my heart until I saw her again. I told her the other night, I said, I still remember the first thought I had after we left the reception. I looked at you and realized, I don't ever have to say goodbye to you again. I don't ever have to cut through that hurt again. This is 44 years ago. I can still feel it when I look at pictures. If that's how I felt and still feel towards her today, just imagine how far magnified that is when God looks at you or me or someone else that's yet not in his family and realizes that there's coming a day 
when the door is going to close forever. And God will live forever with that ache. I can't ever have them. And yet I paid for them. But God, so rich is he in mercy. In order to satisfy the great and wonderful and intense love with which he loved you made you alive together with Christ seated you with him in heavenly places why did he send his best because he loved you so much he couldn't stand to go on with that ache in his heart of not having you Romans 8.32 then says if he didn't hold back his own son but delivered him for us all how will he not also together with him freely give us all things I've been healed meditating on that scripture why? Because as it dawns on you how much he loves you and what he's willing to do, you realize he's not holding anything back from you. He loves you beyond what your mind and my mind will begin to grasp. But as we'll learn next week, we can receive it by faith. Does it mean we can't know it? No, because the Bible progressively talks about knowing God. That phrase just keeps going. Every time I turn somewhere in the Bible or hear somebody speak, it's all about by the knowing of God. When Rob Grinley was here, he talked out of Peter where he says, you know, grace and peace are multiplied unto you. How? By the knowledge of God. Paul prays that, that God would increase our understanding, our knowledge of him, both in Ephesians and in Colossians. John talks about knowing God intimately. And he did. He knew Jesus intimately. the love of God for you. And as that begins to burst forth in you, it changes you. We're going to look at that next time. It changes you. Because John talks about, well, I want to look there quickly. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. I'll, I'll introduce this to you. Verse 9, in this the love of God was manifested or made real to us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or payment for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. Verse 16, 
we have known and believed the love that God has for us. So there's two aspects of that. Know it and then believing it. The love that God has for us. God is love. He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us or matured in us so that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Why? Because as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love. As the revelation of how much God loves you begins to birth forth in your heart, it will drive out all fear. Perfected love casts out fear. Fear says, I don't know that I'm going to be all right. But when you know how much God loves you, what else is there to be concerned about? Romans 8, it says, if God's for us, who can be against us? If the creator of the universe loves you and desires you this much, what's there to be afraid of? That's why he says, cast your cares on me. Why? Because I care for you. He didn't say, cast your cares on me so you could do more work for me. He said, cast your cares on me because I don't want to see you carrying them. As a parent, you'll see your children struggling with things sometimes as they're growing in areas and maturing in areas and maybe making decisions that you wish they hadn't made and maybe making decisions you made also but, and know what kind of consequence of those decisions. But whatever it is, you're always a parent. And sometimes you see your children struggling and going through something and your heart breaks for them. You wish you could take it on yourself and do it yourself. God did. He could take on himself what you and I did. And he did it because of how much he loves us. So having done that, he doesn't want to see you struggle. He doesn't want to see you carrying cares around. So he says, roll them over on me because I care for you. Jesus said, don't you know your father knows what you need before you ask him? Look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil. Look at the splendor of them. And they just grow up today and they're burned tomorrow. Look at the birds of the air. God, if he so feeds the birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field, will he not do so much more for us whom he loves? But the key is the revelation of how much God loves you. Next week, we're going to talk about how to receive that love. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. There's no way our words can express our gratitude, but we do come to you to thank you. We pray again, Father, that you would continue to open the eyes of our understanding, that the truth and the reality of how much you love us would break through to us and reveal to us how much you loved us 
when you gave your only son's life in our place. Father, I pray for all of us today that this truth would become so real to us that it would literally transform us into the images of Christ. We know that's your will and it's your promise. So we receive it this morning by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.